want to invite you to open your Bible to Acts chapter 2. It's the day of Pentecost. We'll kind of jump into what that means here in a moment. We're going to get started. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. We're going to begin by reading through verse 13. It says, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia and Phygria and Pamphylia and Egypt and parts of Libya near Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues, Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they've had too much wine. I want to give a little setup to the, the events that take place here as we launch into Acts before we start going with, with what comes next, which is the preaching of the gospel. We're also going to kind of talk a little bit about speaking in tongues, what that is, because it's kind of the elephant in the room. It's not the heart of the text, but it's probably something we should discuss, so we'll briefly do that. But the day of Pentecost, as it's referred to, is 50 days after Passover. That's why it's Pentecost. And so that's the Greek word that they would use to refer to this day. The Hebrew phrase that you might hear to refer to this religious celebration is called the Feast of Weeks. And the reason they called it that is they were to wait seven times seven. So a week of weeks, so 49 days. And then there would be on the 50th day a celebration. There would be all sorts of sacrifices. And then kind of a communal meal would be shared in which the poor and the alien would be invited to. This is really interesting. If you look at a number of the feasts that the, Jeru- that the Israelites were required to, to keep, one of the things that kind of finds its way into a great number of them is that, is that whatever was sacrificed generally tends to be shared with the poor and the alien. And this is a really interesting thing about the nation of Israel, just as a side note. It is kind of in the middle of many trade routes, so it's an area of high traffic of people throughout the nations. And as they would travel through, if you were to land in Jerusalem on one of these festival days as a foreigner, in the midst of a desert region in which drought was common, poverty and malnutrition was frequent, you would find a people with no need. You would find the richest as well as the poorest celebrating. And I think the intention was is that people would say, what is so unique about these people and their God? That everyone celebrates, that no one is lacking. And that's also part of the Feast of Weeks. It was a celebration of the grain harvest. And so sometimes you'll hear it referred to as the Harvest Festival. And so on this 50th day, there was this communal meal taking place and you had people from all over the empire there in Jerusalem. It's one of three festivals that the Old Testament actually requires every Israelite to attend. It's laid out in Leviticus chapter 23. If you want to turn there, 
Leviticus 23, the Feast of Weeks is explained. Verse 15, it says, From the day after the Sabbath day, you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, count off seven full weeks, count off fifty days up to the day after the seventh Sabbath, and present an offering of new grain to the Lord. From wherever you live, bring two loaves made of two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour, baked with yeast, as a wave offering of first fruits to the Lord. Present this bread with seven male lambs each year, each a year old without defect, one young bull and two rams. They will be a burnt offering to the Lord together with their grain offerings and a drink offering, an offering made by fire and an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Then sacrifice one male goat for a sin offering and two lambs, each a year old, for a fellowship offering. The priest is to wave the two lambs before the Lord as a wave offering together with the bread of the first fruits. They are sacred offering to the Lord for the priest. On the same day, you will proclaim a sacred assembly and do not do regular work. This is a lasting ordinance for the generations to come wherever you live. So no matter where you lived, you were required by Leviticus after the grain harvest on that day to bring some bread some animals, and to show up at the temple to celebrate the Feast of Weeks. Now, what happens, though, is between Leviticus and the, day, and the time of Jesus, the people get taken into captivity, removed from the land, and the temple's destroyed. And so everyone quits coming to Jerusalem every year because they live a thousand miles away and there's no temple to go to. Now, eventually the temple's rebuilt. They begin having the feasts and sacrifices again, but not everyone comes back. The rabbis actually said that, well, maybe if you live within 20 miles, 20 miles you should come back. So mostly what you would have are really, really devout and wealthy Jews from around the world, and then the ones that live locally. Those are the folks that would show up. I've got a map here I wanted to show you as we look through the list of countries that were there that might be helpful in terms of understanding the geography. So we pop up the map. We've got all these different cities listed. I hope that comes through clearly. So we've got the Parthian Empire, the Median Empire, the Eliamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phygria, Pamphylia, Egypt, Libya, Cyrene, Rome, Cretans, Arabs, all over. All descending on Jerusalem on this day, 50 days after Passover. I did a little math. So from Rome to Jerusalem is roughly 1,500 miles direct shot. Now, you had a couple options when traveling that way, and usually people would combo it. You could go on foot, donkey, whatever you had. If you were coming from Rome to the tip there, you could take a little boat over, hit Greece, and then kind of loop around. Or you could try to sail it. If you were to do the whole thing by donkey, I actually looked into this, you average about 20 miles a day on a donkey. Depending on the length of the donkey's legs, you might get up to about 25, but roughly 20. Would take about 70 days to go from Rome to Jerusalem via donkey. That's your, that's your distance. Throw in a sailboat, at the minimum we're talking a 15 to 20 day journey. Just to get one way. That's a long time. Now, some folks live nearer. 
Some folks only live on land, so they don't get the, uh, the benefit of getting to sail it, and they can come straight down. People had a heck of a journey, and so what was common is you would come, if you were to come to Jerusalem for any day, it was going to be Passover. And if you were really devout, you can't go home and then come back 50 days later. So people would hang out. They might stay with family the 50 days, that month and a half, between the two, because it's impractical for you to leave Jerusalem, head back to Rome after Passover, get there, turn around, and come back. And so you had a lot of people in Jerusalem lingering from Passover to the Feast of Weeks, or the day of Pentecost, what happens here. So these are the same people that on Palm Sunday, when Jesus walks in, are yet shouting, save us, then on Friday are saying, crucify him, and then later witness his resurrection. And now the day of Pentecost comes up, these same folks, devout believers, devout Jews, are there in Jerusalem. And then a crowd gathers. Why? Because a loud and rushing wind fills the room. You guys think back not too long ago to when the hurricane came through. If any of you were outside or you could hear it through your windows, it felt like a train going by. It was loud. And so this loud and rushing wind, something like a freight train, which didn't get invented until about 1,800 years later, so that couldn't be it. And they didn't feel wind. So everyone's outside having this communal meal as part of the Feast of Pentecost. And they hear the sound that a tornado coming through would make, except my hair's fine. And so natural inclination is to do what? What's making that noise? What's causing the racket? And so they they head towards the point of origin. And when they arrive there, they see a crowd of people speaking in the languages that they speak at home. This is interesting because we all just speak English. Some of us speak Texan. Um... But mostly that's kind of like English. A few of us might know Spanish or Spanglish. Uh, but, but most folks in, in this era spoke multiple languages. So if you were Jewish, you knew some Hebrew. Even if you didn't speak Hebrew in a, in a regular day, it wasn't normal. All the religious festivals, everything was done in Hebrew, so you knew some Hebrew. You also knew Greek because that was the language of the empire, just like most people around the world who do business speak English. Right? It's a requirement to do business in an international scale. So most people knew Greek. But they also kind of had the native languages that they grew up speaking. Lisha and I were talking this week trying to find a way to maybe understand this. And I, I think this might help. Um, if you go back maybe 30 years in Texas, if you were a recent immigrant of a, of a Mexican-American family, you probably speak Spanish at home within the family, maybe speak English at school. And if you were Catholic and you went to Mass, you probably heard it in Latin. And so you would have commonly, as a part of your life, three different languages spoken. Very similar to what these guys went through. So Hebrew in the religious ceremony. Greek is the language of commerce. But they also had their own little homegrown language. The Greek phrase used referring to the languages is actually dialects. So even more specific than the actual language was the dialect or variation. So not just English, they heard them in Texan. So it was very detailed to where these folks had grown up. And so you show up and you see these guys from Galilee that maybe you already knew were following Jesus, and they're speaking your home language. 
That's pretty significant. It's also very significant because you can't really explain that. Some guy that you know has never left this little fishing area except for his occasional trips to Jerusalem in time following Jesus, speaking all these languages that there's no reasonable expectation that he would know. See, but Isaiah had actually told them that this would happen. God, through Isaiah, in Isaiah 28, verse 11, prophesied this very event, and it's coming. After the people refused to listen to their prophets, God says, very well then, with foreign lips and strange tongues, God will speak to His people. So God prophesies a coming time when He will speak again to them, but He'll do it in a way that is different. There'll be different languages and it won't necessarily be something that they would have expected. You see, they believed that the ministry of the Holy Spirit had pretty much been pressed pause. The prophets had stopped speaking. It had been about 400 years since the prophet. And they generally believed that the Holy Spirit had, had sort of left the building and looked forward with great expectation to His coming again and doing something in the people as again. And so when they begin to speak on behalf of God, God validates that message by giving them the ability to speak in languages they didn't know so that others would understand it. Now, many of them were perplexed and amazed. This is crazy. They, they, how are they doing this? And some thought, well, they're just a little drunk. And so Peter stands up to address the crowd and provide a little bit of clarity. It says, Peter stood up with the eleven and raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews, and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk as you suppose. It is only nine in the morning. He said, we haven't even had time to get drunk yet. It's just nine in the morning. So he just kind of dismisses that. And I want to talk for a moment about what speaking in tongues is, maybe our church's position on it, and how we interact with Christians that we dearly love that we just disagree on this point. So speaking in tongues happens three times in the book of Acts. These are the only actual narrative accounts of it occurring. Other books, particularly 1 Corinthians, reference the gift, but these are the only three that explain or, or tell the story of it happening when it happens. So in Acts chapter 2, we have the day of Pentecost where the apostles stand up, they proclaim the gospel to the Jews, and they do it in such a way that everyone's individual native language is understood. And that's a sign. These guys don't know this language, they're able to proclaim the gospel to us, it must be from God. It, it vindicates the message as well as, it validates the message as well as the messenger. In Acts chapter 10, there's a guy named Cornelius who is not a Jew, who is coming to faith. They are, they are accepting the gospel. The Holy Spirit comes and they speak in tongues. And this validates to the Jewish people there that God is moving in the Gentiles as well. In fact, Peter comes back after Acts 10 to the Jerusalem church and in Acts 11 says, look, the Holy Spirit came on them the same way. God is really pursuing the non-Jewish world, the Gentile as well. And it also happens again in Acts chapter 19 where we find a group of people who had been followers of John the Baptist. So they had received the baptism of John, which was repentance and preparation for the coming Messiah. But that's the end of the story as far as they knew. 
The apostles proclaim the gospel to them. They accept it and they lay hands on them and they speak in tongues as well, validating to these devout Jews that Jesus really is the Messiah that John the Baptist had spoke of. We put all that together as a few things that in each case define what it is to speak in tongues. One, it's an actual human language spoken and recognized by people. And every time it occurs in the book of Acts, that's what it is. It's an actual human language. It's not a private prayer language that, that we pray and God understands. Uh, some people take uh, 1 Corinthians 13.1, where Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, and they say, Oh, look, there's an angelic language. I think that's pro- my understanding is that that's figurative language. And he's saying, Look, if I could speak in every language under heaven, but I don't love, it's a waste of time and it's a bunch of noise. So I think they're, they're, they're misunderstanding figurative language when they say that because every time it occurs in the book of Acts, actual human language that someone can understand. Two, it was a sign to validate Jesus as the Messiah and the apostles as his messengers. It was a sign gift. It validated what they were saying was from God and that they, in fact, had been sent from God. And three, it was particularly directed towards unbelieving Israel, that it was a validation to them that God was again prophesying And it makes perfect sense because now we have people dispersed throughout the world understanding different languages and this was a way that God could validate to them that the message of Jesus was, in fact, true. So that's what we understand. We believe at our church that tongues were a sign gift that validated the gospel message and the messenger, um, particularly to unbelieving Israel. Because of that, we don't expect that speaking in tongues will be a normal part of our interaction today. We don't. We're not saying God can't do it. We're saying it seems that He's not. And so that's kind of the position of our church. You can read our doctrinal statement if you have some more questions about that. But for those who disagree with us, we're still on the same team. We're still on the same team. We still love each other. We don't discount the ministry that happens in... Churches of brothers and sisters who just disagree with us on this point. Um, to put it to you this way, there's a couple guys that I work with that, that I'm praying for, that at every opportunity trying to share the gospel with them. And if one of them were at my prompting to attend a church that disagreed with us on this point and get saved, I guess I'd be okay with that. Right? I'd be, I, what breed of Christian someone becomes after salvation is less important. And so where we might... We might die for the gospel, for Jesus' sinless life, death, burial, resurrection, that He's coming in. We'll die for that. Uh, maybe take really deep paper cuts for this one. Right? This is what we understand. This is what we believe to be true. We're not going to divide over it. Right? But it is important that we say where we stand and what we believe. And so now the, the bulk of the message, the heart of, of this passage, is when Peter stands up raises his voice to address the crowd. He says, these men are not drunk. It's just nine in the morning. He says, no, this was spoken of by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. So Peter's sermon connects it to the Spirit returning and enabling God to speak again to this prophetic message of the Gospel. To pick up again in verse 22, he says, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth 
was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him. As you yourselves know, this man was handed over by you, handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep his hold on him. It was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. It says, David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. In verse 29, Peter explains this. He said, Brothers, I can tell you confidently that David the patriarch died and was buried. And his tomb is here with us today. But he was a prophet. And he knew that God had promised him on an oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ that He was not abandoned to the grave, nor did His body see decay. And God has raised this Jesus to life. And we are witnesses of that fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet. Therefore, Let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. That's the proclamation of the gospel message. That this Jesus, who they had handed over to sinful men to be nailed to a tree, who died, but who death could not hold, rose again, and was exalted, and be certain of this. He is Lord and Christ. And that's the gospel message he preaches. A few things I want to point out about this message, that it's about Jesus. He stands up to preach. He preaches from the Psalms. He preaches from the prophet Joel. But he preaches about Jesus. The whole thing is about Jesus. Start to finish, the message is about Jesus. And that is the preaching you will find throughout the book of Acts. It is centered upon Christ, not only centered upon Christ, but on the gospel message. And so that's our pattern for preaching. And somewhere along the way in the church, we decided there are two types of sermons. There are sermons for Christians that are about growth, and there are sermons for non-Christians that are about the gospel. And I would say that that's a really bad separation. It's a false dichotomy, and that there are preaching... There's preaching that is about Jesus, that the Holy Spirit empowers, and it brings the gospel message. And that the gospel message invades our lives to bring salvation and growth. And so we proclaim Jesus died on a cross, resurrected, ascended to heaven, reigning in glory, sending gifts to the church for ministry, and coming again. And when we do that, when we embrace that truth, it begins to not only affect us in salvation, but it shapes us in discipleship. And so we preach Jesus because that's all there is to preach. The text says he stood up and he raised his voice. He spoke loudly. He was yelling over the crowd and he was proclaiming the gospel message. And we live in a culture that says preaching, I don't know. We even see that in the church. We don't call them sermons so much anymore. We don't call it preaching. We call them talks. Right? 
talks. And so the church that was birthed from a sermon of a Galilean country boy yelling is going to grow through talks? No. Dialogue is great. Conversation is great. All of those things are good. But central to the church is that we proclaim the gospel. That someone under the conviction of the Holy Spirit stands up passionately proclaiming Jesus died, resurrected, Lord of all. And we do it with absolute certainty. That's what he says. He said, let all Israel be assured. Let them be certain. Let them know for sure this, that this Jesus who's died has now been exalted and is both Lord and Christ. And so we preach with certainty and our culture hates that. We'll be accused of being arrogant and judgmental and closed-minded because we preach with certainty. Our non-believing friends and family members and co-workers can't understand it because the Holy Spirit is the only one who can bring certainty regarding the gospel and empower us to live according to it. And so they don't get it and it's not their fault. But we preach it knowing for sure. We don't have suggestions. We don't have thoughts or ideas or, or maybe this is it. No, we preach with certainty. One pastor in explaining this passage, uh, he said, we don't preach opinions. We preach facts. He had a great example. He said, I think that the designated hitter in baseball is a really bad idea. Right? I think if you're going to throw it, guys, that you should have to stand in the box and let them throw at you. That's what you think. That's an opinion. We don't think Jesus rose from the dead. We don't sort of think that he is Lord in Christ. We know for certain. We know for certain. When we take that stand, it's going to ruffle some feathers. But that's what we're called to do. And we can't expect that the church that was birthed through the authoritative, passionate preaching of the gospel will grow by anything less than that. And so we preach the gospel. It's about Jesus. It's not five steps to this or that or 27 steps to health and wealth today. It's not your best life now. It's Jesus. Always Jesus. Nothing but Jesus. If you go to a church that doesn't preach Jesus and you're just here visiting, I would encourage you to find some place that preaches Jesus week in, week out, all the time. It doesn't have to be here. But it's about Christ. And so when we gather as a body, whether it's in Bible studies or having a cup of coffee or, or a service, the question is, does this exalt Jesus? Does this lift up Jesus? Because that's the call of the church. Under the guidance, direction, empowerment of the Holy Spirit to proclaim Christ. And so what's the response? Verse 37 tells us how the people responded to this message. This loud message preached with certainty. So therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. It says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, for forgiveness of sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
This promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, for all whom the Lord will call. With many other words, He warned them and He pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted the message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Wow. We haven't seen anything near that in generations. So their response was that immediately they were cut to the heart. They were convicted of sin. They understood at the beginning to grasp that this Jesus who they had resurrected, I mean, who they had crucified, had been resurrected and who was the Christ, and they were cut to the heart. And guys, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. When you hear the proclamation of the gospel message that Jesus is the Son of God who died for our sins, who rose again, who is reigning in glory, who will return, you hear that and, and, and you feel it inside of you, that conviction, that's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So don't get mad at the guy preaching because he made you feel bad. He doesn't write the mail. He just delivers it. And that's the Holy Spirit. And if the gospel message is to advance, it is by His power working in the lives of individuals. Softening their hearts, preparing them to receive the gospel. And upon it, having this conviction, this sense of, wow, why didn't I know this? They said, Peter, what do we do next? And so Peter tells them they need to do two things. He says they need to repent and they need to be baptized. And I want to walk through this because some people can kind of take this, misunderstand what I believe is a simple answer to a simple question and say you have to be baptized to be saved and then we go down all this works-based salvation which is just another form of religion that opposes God as opposed to thanking God for the gospel and the work of Jesus. That we don't add anything to. That we accept as a gift. And when we view it that way, Christ is sufficient. He is all that we need. It's not Christ plus us. It's Jesus' everything. And so he says, repent. Repent is basically a change in mind or a change in heart that leads to a change in behavior. When we preach repentance, we often seem to get the idea that, that we're slapping someone's hand saying, you're doing a bad thing, I want you to stop doing a bad thing and start doing a good thing. But repentance is more about a change in heart and a change in attitude about who Jesus is and about the gospel message. It basically involves two things. One is that we recognize that we are sinful before God and that Jesus died on the cross and rose again. We understand who we are and who Jesus is. And not only that we we recognize the historical truth of that, but second is we begin to see the beauty in the gospel. There are plenty of people that will tell you, I think Jesus was a man. I think he died on a cross. And the best historical record seems to think he, he rose again. That's not faith. That's kind of agreement-ish with history. Faith is not only when we see those things, but now those are beautiful truths to us. And so the Spirit allows us to have a change in mind about Jesus and to embrace those things as beautiful and true. And that is the moment that repentance begins to take place. It's not only the recognition that those might be factual, but delighting in those facts. So the Holy Spirit enables us to repent. In the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther nails 95 Theses onto the Wittenberg church door, kicks off this whole thing that starts the Protestant Reformation, sending the gospel around the world in our church today. And his first line, the first line, 
says that the whole of a believer's life is one of continual repentance. That we're continually turning to Christ, changing our heart about Him, believing that He is Lord in Christ, and in doing so, we have the ability to turn from sin. It's one of consistent, continual turning to Christ, re-examining the gospel message, and falling in love with it again. This doesn't mean that we lose our salvation. It means that that's the way we continue to grow. So he says, repent. Second, he says, to be baptized, which is the outward expression that you have accepted the gospel. Baptism is a symbol of this, that Christ died for our sins and was buried. He goes under the water. That's what we do in baptism. And then rose again. So you come up. And we do that when we baptize through immersion. Because that is the symbolism given in the New Testament to describe what we are embracing. And so we say that you are baptized symbolically into Christ's death, raised to new life. We proclaim that truth publicly about Jesus and that we believe it and that it has changed us. And so he says repent, which is kind of this whole idea of turning to Christ. And after that, be baptized. Some of you are here today and you're Christians, you've turned to Christ, you've never taken that step of baptism and you need to do that. There's a couple reasons why. One is that it is a way for you to publicly affirm that you have believed in Jesus, that you have been buried with Him in your death and rose again through His life and the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a way to publicly proclaim that. It's also a way that we as a body can celebrate what God is doing. It's not just about you. When you are baptized, we all get a chance to celebrate and get reminded of the gospel message that we too have died to our sin through Jesus in faith and been rose again by the power of the Holy Spirit to a new life. So you get to be obedient to Christ, experience that special moment, and the entire body gets to celebrate and be reminded of the gospel. It is also a great opportunity if you are from a family of non-believers to get your family here and hear the gospel proclaimed. Because as much as you try as a family member, you have a difficult time, in many cases, sharing the gospel with your family. Rule of thumb, if someone changed your diaper, they're probably not going to accept the gospel from you. You should preach it, but they probably won't listen. So you pray for other people to come around and you create opportunities to bring them in. And so baptism is very important and has always been very important to the church and continues to be so today. And so he tells them to be baptized and to repent. 3,000 people do it that day. So, what does this mean for us? Not only as a church, but as people, as individuals. Let me give you a quick one. It's kind of a personal pet peeve. And I, any church I ever visit, I look for this, just so you know. So I'm not picking on you. I like to visit churches, and when the gospel starts to get proclaimed at the end, to see how many people start fiddling through their stuff and packing their things away. I just like to look for that. Keep an eye out for it. Don't become a legalistic guy. Don't start smacking people when they do it. But just keep an eye out for it. Because the gospel is the center of what we do. It's not just for the non-believer, guys. It's for us too. Right? So everything the church does should be to exalt Jesus. And when we proclaim the gospel, it's not only good for the non-believer, 
to hear it and to be saved and experience new life. It's good for the believer. Why? To be reminded that Jesus is Christ, that he is Lord. Because really my sin problems are really a gospel issue for me. If I'm greedy, it's not a math issue with my budget. It's because I'm not remembering that God is a giver. And He has given generously in His Son, Jesus. And He wants me to give in the same way. It's a gospel issue. If I struggle with sin, repetitiously the same one over and over again, it's not just a sin problem. Deeper than that, it's a gospel issue. I don't really believe that Jesus has set me free from that. If I am critical towards my brother or my sister in Christ... It's not just a skeets and a jerk issue. It's a gospel issue. I don't remember or realize that I am nothing on my own, that everything good in me comes from Him, and that apart from Him, I'm morally, spiritually, and utterly bankrupt. And when I don't remember that, it's easy for me to be the elder brother in Luke 15 and have a chip on my shoulder towards other people and be critical. Whatever sin I struggle with, guys, it's a gospel issue. And the, the real antidote to that is not... To try harder, it's to embrace the gospel and cling to Jesus stronger. So you struggle with following Christ in your relationships? He's Lord over that too. And so we want to remind everyone that this Jesus, who they killed, who died for our sins, is both Lord and Christ. And that everything the church does, that everything the Christian does is under the power of the Holy Spirit. The whole thing, start to finish, is a work of grace as we're drawn along by the Holy Spirit. As we grow, as we overcome sin, as a body, as we reach out to our community, it's all about the Holy Spirit and His empowering. And that's the big idea of Acts chapter 2, is that Jesus is Lord, He has sent His Spirit, the heavy lifting's done. Now we follow Him. We exalt Him. We make Him Lord over our lives and we embrace the gospel. I want to pray, and then we have a time to worship. And as we worship, I I just was struck by something that Zach so clearly pointed out, is that we often fail to recognize that because of the Holy Spirit, Christ's presence is with us continuously and constantly. And in a very special way, when we gather together to worship. In Genesis, when, when Jacob wrestles with God, he walks away from that place. And his comment is, surely the Lord was in this place and I was unaware. And I think frequently we experience that unawareness. And so I would ask that you would pray and that as you worship, you would consider the very presence of God. The scriptures actually, in instructing how we worship, tell us that the angels are watching as well and that they are worshiping in concert with us before the throne of God. And so as you worship, I want to expand your view of what's happening here to recognize that the Spirit of God is present in a unique way and that the angels in heaven are watching on and they are exalting Jesus as we worship. And so when we sing, we sing with great joy and great passion because Jesus with great passion and great suffering won our redemption. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you that the gospel message has been preached down through the ages across the continents in almost every nation. Father, we stand amazed that in that, that you have called us to be yours, that you have redeemed us. Father, that you have given us eternal life and sent the Holy Spirit to guide us and empower us individually as well as as a church. Father, we would pray today that 
that, Lord, we would give up freely to the Gospel. If there are those here who have never embraced Christ, Lord, as the payment for their sin and their hope for the future, I would pray that they would embrace Him today, that Your Spirit would work and lead in them and would call them in such a way that they can't deny the beauty of the Gospel. And Father, I would also pray for those who have been believers for a while, Lord, that... uh, We would not grow tired of hearing the message of Christ's death, resurrection, and His exaltation, His being high and lifted up, but that we would rejoice in that and that we would be reminded of that at every turn so that we might experience victory over sin, not because of our own power, but because of the empowerment of Your Spirit. Lord, we pray for those that are Christians, maybe new Christians or maybe have been believers for a while and have yet resisted being baptized, and I would pray that You would lead them in that way so that they can experience that moment with you, so that they could publicly profess their faith. And Lord, so that the body around them could celebrate and be reminded of the beauty of the gospel. Thank you for what you're doing in and among us. We pray that you would move through us. In Christ's name, amen.